Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome to the Photographic Collective Podcast. My name is Miles Whitboyer. Um, you guys have got a treat. Whether you are, uh, you're listening to us the way you normally do, either on the Apple Podcast Store or uh, in Spotify, or you're clicking over to see us in YouTube today, um, you can probably already tell this. I'm sitting with, uh, with my good buddy all the way from the UK. Tom Wright is with me today. He's, he's waving. Those of you that can't see the YouTube channel, he's wa- it's a podcast, Tom. I'm <laughs> sorry. You said slightly to your intro. I wasn't sure when I was supposed to start. Way to make it so. awkward. Oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> anyway, well, let me let me give the intro. Let me kind of set the scene because now Tom just made the world awkward. Uh, I mean, that's my, that's my job. If you've listened to this podcast, it's true. Thank you for being the uh, the the British comedic relief. Um, yeah, oh, those of us over on this side of the pond, we don't get your humor, Tom. We don't understand it. Uh, it's too complex for us. Like a fine wine. There it is again. Uh, okay, so, <laughs> um, okay, y'all. Let me let me set the scene though, really quick. So, those of you guys that have listened to the podcast for a while, uh, you know a handful of things about me. Uh, number one, I don't accept compliments very well. Um, that's just not something that I'm great at, and I really love to deflect that. Number two, I don't like to talk about gear a lot. Um, the reason for that is because it's an ever-evolving cycle, right? Like the moment you decide that you're going to be that photographer, that all you think about is is pixel peeping, um, you'll never be happy again. And yet, here we are. I, uh, I've got, um, we're having a conversation with Tom today about some of the new tech that has been released, some of the new gear that's coming out. But also my hope is, Tom, that we go a little bit bigger and a little bit broader and talk about the way that just making intentional tech decisions informs our businesses and our creativity and et cetera, et cetera. So I can't stay in the weeds for long. You know, I, I, my head belongs up in the clouds. So, so first, Tom, assuming that people haven't heard the last episode that you were on with me, can you give us just like a quick high level on who you are, where you are, and why, why you're here? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, my name's Tom Wright. I'm a commercial f- well, photographer and videographer in the UK. Um, for the last sort of six months or so, I've been, actually been focusing more on education, specifically for photographers that do this for a living, um, and pretty pretty heavily centered around Lightroom, editing, workflow practices, and equipment choices, which is the, one of the main reasons why I'm here. Um, so yeah, that, that's me. If you want to know any more, like obviously check out my Instagram or my website and you'll probably get a pretty good idea of what I'm like. Yeah, perfect. So, and, and obviously all those links are in the show notes or also uh, just below in, in YouTube as well. Um, and we'll make sure that Tom monitors, like as this post on YouTube that he monitors comments so he can get back to you guys as well. But okay, so let's talk really quick. I'm going to ask you the most polarizing question that I can and then we're going we're gonna to backpedal out of this together, Okay. <laughs> I'm ready. Tom, how important how important is a camera to you? Oh, like Okay, so people keep people often say that gear isn't important and that's fair enough, but I've never seen somebody take a picture without a camera. That's all I'm saying. Like for me, a lot of the inspiration in photography comes at getting to grips with new equipment or trying to find a way to use something that's unusual or basically seeing how it fits into my life. But for me, photography is more of a performance art. Like I like the action of taking a photograph. And again, that action is different if you use different equipment. So it's not so much that the gear itself and like the kind of like, oh, my brand's better than yours thing matters. It's more, how do you feel when you're using it? What kind of results can you get from it? 
And is that where you want to be creatively? Because very often the thing that the industry pushes as being the correct choice is not the one that you're going to enjoy the most. Mm, I think that's a really special way to put it. So, so you just boiled something down. Like, I think it's not coincidental that the last sentence that you said had the word joy in it, right? Like you, you did mention creativity. You did mention, you know, technique and, and, and whatnot, but you finished with that concept of joy. So how, I guess in your opinion, before we like get kind of in the weeds, how, how does making the right choices with your gear equate to joy for you? Um, I think, I think it's a difficult question to answer because the, that, that kind of term, the right camera is such a loaded phrase. Um, because if you listen to the majority of the, the kind of pundits that are in review sites or on YouTube, what the, the, the right camera is, is the one that's got the sharpest lens or the one that has the shallowest depth of field or the one with the fastest autofocus or the camera that's got like the most dynamic range. And Honestly, I think a lot of the time, if we spend too much time focusing on those things, you end up with a group of people where every single person has made the same equipment choice. But I think a better way to look at it is trying to work out what's important to you and working around that. So if you're a portrait photographer, there's a very good chance that sharpness is not the first thing you should be looking at. Because I don't know about anybody else, but my skin isn't perfect. You can see it right now. If you're looking on YouTube, like it's, it's, I'm definitely not a perfect person. I don't have a perfect appearance. And it's unkind to shoot me with infinite depth of field and a lens that's incredibly sharp. So the joy comes in finding a sweet spot where you're happy. To give you an example, like a, my main camera right now, although maybe not for very long, is a Canon R5 with a 50 millimeter 1.2. And this lens is enormous. I mean, huge. It's super sharp and it has a massively shallow depth of field. But believe it or not, this very expensive, very heavy lens does not have as much character as this very cheap, very little lens, this little nifty 50, 50 millimeter 1.8. But if you listen to the industry, you should never buy this and you should never use it. You should buy this one because this is the professional one. So for me, I think a large part of the joy comes with experimenting and trying to find something that it's more of a reflection of what you want to make and less of what the camera is capable of. Mm, okay, dude. Yes, yes. I, you know, I always think about it like this. I think if if everybody, you sort of touched on this, but I I think of like if everybody decided tonight that they were going to be musicians and they were going to only be singer-songwriters and they were going to have an acoustic guitar and a microphone and, uh, and just sit there and, and pour their heart out, regardless of how talented they are. That, that's not really the point here, but, but they were just going to pour their heart, heart out on the microphone. And then one person decided that they were going to be a, uh, like a lounge DJ Right, they were just going to mix music and make weird sounds. Yeah. You tell me who the artist is, and I, I think often the the art falls, the the level of creativity falls in sometimes a, a touch of arrogance, but usually just in the unbridled ability to fall in line. Like I don't want to fall in line, and then you know what comes from that? It's the art. Mm. 
so no, that's, right. that's sort of how the conversation started with you and I, right? Was this idea of like, I, I, we, we were having this conversation, full, full disclosure, guys, Tom and I write back and forth a lot. And we were having this conversation about your hesitancy to get rid of that 51.2. Yeah. Right. I mean, it, it was a, it was a decision you were struggling with. So talk me through that. Like why, why is it that you, that you feel trapped to stay in, in a situation like that? So this is, this is kind of the issue. So because that's the, the best lens that Canon have ever made in that focal length, you don't want to get let, let, let go. Like very often you look at it and think the price tag is high. This is clearly the best one. Like, why don't I like it that much anymore? Like, what is it, what is it that's making me think this is not the correct solution? And it's pretty difficult to kind of look at that and think, well, everybody tells me that I should get the, the L lens, I should get the, the fancy lens, I should get the luxury lens with the great, the best coatings, the best kind of like AF motors, all the rest of it. And frankly, there's a financial side of it too. Like Canon have basically doubled the prices of all the lenses since I first moved onto the system because I bought in when they were on the OSR. And now the lens that I paid maybe £1,500 for is nearly 3000 It's £2,600. So there's kind of like a, a huge amount of money involved. So if I ever decided in the future, you know what, I'd really like that lens again. Realistically, I'm losing not just the depreciation, but also... I probably couldn't justify spending that amount of money again on it. And I guess that's part of the reason why we do look at things like reviews on the YouTube culture rather than trusting our own eyes and our own kind of opinion on the gear because you want somebody to reassure you that you're spending money wisely when actually if more of us had more confidence in our own judgment and looked at the things that we're making, we might be less inclined to make these upgrades or to fall back on somebody else's idea of what makes something good. But you asked me why I was struggling with it. And frankly, the reason I was struggling with it is because until recently, this was exactly what I wanted out of a lens. I wanted something that would like give me a very disconnected look, like help people stand out from the background and like make their eyes stand out and that kind of nice dreamy effect until I realized that I was using it on shoots and it wasn't appropriate. Like I was not spending as much time selecting my backgrounds as I should have been. I was leaning too heavily on the on the kind of lens's sharpness and ability to blur the background and not focusing on what I should have been, which was composition. And equally, if I really wanted a lens that had so much character, this probably isn't the one. It's a super performant, really sharp, really fast focusing lens. But if I want something with more character, there's an entire world of vintage lenses out there that you could look at. And they all have more characters than this. Perfectly said. So I'm going to ask you a question, listener, not, not Tom, you, you guys listening, okay? I'm going to ask you a direct question. What if, because of the gear choices that you've made, what if your work is not memorable? Like, what if the thing that's standing between you and more success or more creativity or more value or just a larger share in, in your, uh, your area or your market? What if that the single thing is just the fact that you have chosen gear that inherently makes your work forgettable? And, and uh, so, Tom, to bring it back to you, you made this, you made this statement to me. It was like the, the caveat to this conversation you made this statement to me where I was asking you about what gear you have and what gear you love, and we're going to get there in a second. But you made this comment to me that you said, here's all the gear that I have. 
And then you said, and, oh yeah, that's right. I also have this, but you would have to pry this out of my cold, dead hands. What, what, you mean what was that? It's, this is a, a Fuji X100V. Like a little camera that I bought because I wanted something to take pictures of my family with. And literally there is not a camera that I would rather carry. Like, and I told myself I wouldn't use this for work until I did. And then the second I used it on a job, I don't ever want to, I don't ever want to shoot with that Canon again because <laughs> the image quality is like within maybe 10%. Like it's not, it's not the same. The Canon is objectively a, a more detailed camera and sensor. But if you're asking me what I'm taking pictures of my own family on, it's this. And if I have a job where this can do it, it it's the pictures are getting taken on this. Just plain and simple. I, I love this camera. Dude, I, I mean, clearly I'm holding mine as well. I, um, I like cuddling with it. I, <laughs> Let me tell you a funny story, Tom. I think you're going to love this. So, um, you know, we've, we've talked about this a little bit. So Fuji Kina was in New York. Um, I guess it's been about a month ago now, right? Um, the first time that uh, Fuji Kina has ever been outside of Japan and they moved it to the continental US to New York. And I had this incredible opportunity, like a sincere honor to be there for parts of it, for the summit and all the releases of the new gear and all of the stuff. But this... I noticed this immediately upon hitting the floor to Fujikina. So I, I walk in and I see Stacy Moore. And uh, those of you guys that don't know who Stacy Moore is, she's sort of a big wig at Fujifilm, big big friend of mine, and um, just very important, uh, just, yeah, an affluent member of that community. And I see Stacy Moore, and then I see Victor Ha. Victor Ha is the, uh, the president of the North American team. And then I see uh, Brian Manier, who's this remarkable uh, landscape photographer. And the list goes on and on, guys. I mean, it just, just suffice it to say, there is every, every Fujifilm photographer and corporate person you've ever heard of, and most that you haven't, are in one room. And we're all there to announce and celebrate the release of brand new gear. You know, not to mention most of us are shooting 100 plus megapixel uh, large format digital cameras and et cetera, et cetera. Tom, what do you think the only camera that was on everybody's shoulder was? Probably the X100V, let's face it. Like, it, it, it's just... It was it. This, this I, little... Yeah, it's, just, it's just so portable. Like, it doesn't have a strap on it right now, but this is literally the only time it's not just had a strap on it and been on my shoulder. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you're, you're absolutely spot on. You're right. And I thought it was really fascinating, man. I was sitting there watching all these, these big names... People that, that have all the gear, they've got access to everything that they want. And the camera that they were choosing to carry on them was a little fixed lens. I mean, don't get me wrong, this thing's amazing, but you know, it's a fixed lens camera with a single card slot and uh, you know, a battery that's not even current generations and et cetera, et cetera. So it sort of sparked this conversation for me where I wanted to chat with you because I just really appreciate your tech perspective in front of all these people about the way that the industry is moving as far as gear is perceived. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, so give me, give us some clarity there. Cause I think you've got your finger on that trigger. So, so talk, talk to me about what you're seeing. So, I mean, it's worth giving a bit of backstory because I, I'm the kind of person that I like to be an early adopter of things. Like I like to be the, the person that has the newest, whatever, because I, not because I just want the status of it, because frankly, a lot of the time I pick things that other people think are dumb because I'm too early. So I switched to Sony when everybody hated Sony. And I moved away from Sony 
when they dropped the A7 III because not to be mean to anybody at Sony, I felt like the quality control wasn't where it should have been. And they actually made the colors from the camera worse, in my opinion, from the A7 II to the three. So I was looking at this and everybody's telling me this camera's the one, this is the right one. So I stuck with it for about a year after that, but I was just hating the colors I was getting out of it. So I, I sold that and kind of actually bought a Fuji, a Fuji kit, an XT, XT3s, XT3s, and shot with that for a while. Absolutely loved it. And then had a couple of jobs that needed me to, to perform at very, very high ISO. And I didn't feel the quality was there. So I ended up with Canon and kind of, I've been on Canon since then. And I think one of the issues that I'm seeing is that the general trend in the industry from most companies is to sacrifice everything on the altar of giving you a flexible file. So if you look back a little while, the 5D Mark III had a really unique sensor. It wasn't super it wasn't super flexible, but when you shot a photograph with that camera, it had a look to it right from the camera. And a lot of Canon people that have stayed with Canon have stayed on the 5D Mark III. And now they're using these new mirrorless cameras like the R5 and R6. There's a lot of people that are upset with the way that the sensors look. And it's not because they're bad. It's just they've sacrificed some of that character for the sake of dynamic range and color depth and all the rest of it. So the, the sensor doesn't have as much of an opinion right out the gate, but it's much more capable of being shaped in a way that you, you might enjoy the image eventually. And I think that unfortunately, we're going a little bit too far down that road. I, I feel like it, in times past, if you bought a film stock, you would have done it with the view to kind of say, I want to I get the color palette from a Kodak film. So I'll go and buy Portrait 400 or I'll buy Kodak Gold. And that film's going to have somebody that cares about color designing the chemistry in that film so that when you come and get it developed, it's going to have a really pleasing set of skin tones and color palette right off the bat. So you might choose to do some kind of post-production on it, but you don't need to. The film has a look and you can then decide which film to pick based on the look you want. Whereas more and more now, what I'm seeing is that, frankly, Sony makes all the sensors, unless you're shooting Canon, they make all the sensors. So the Fujifilm cameras, they've, they've got Sony sensors in them. And the same with um, the same with Nikon, the same with Panasonic. Literally the only company that's not, not using Sony sensors, as far as I'm aware, is is Canon. Now, the downside of that is that obviously Canon is having to do all the R&D, but the thing that boggles my mind is that those amazing colors you get out of, say, a Fuji camera or a Leica are coming from the same sensors that Sony has access to, and yet Sony does not have great color out of camera. I think it's pretty fair to say. It's getting better in a lot of people's opinions, but it's not great. But what you asked me was, which direction do you think I see things going? In an ideal world, I'd want camera companies to get their personality back. I'd want to see Nikon leaning into that slightly cooler skin tone with a little bit of a green undertone to it. I'd want to see Canon leaning back into peachy pink skin tones with like a warm color to them. I'd want Sony to go back to the color science that I loved when I first moved over to them when they were using Zeiss lenses and everything and things had a blue tint and it was kind of, kind of very modern and edgy. And I want to see people at Fujifilm basically doing what they're already doing. Because as much as I can complain about a lot, one of the reasons why I love this camera is even though I can't push the X100 files very far, they already look good. It'll take me a few seconds at most to make this file look exactly the way I want it to. Whereas if I'm doing the same thing with a Canon or even my old Sony files or a Nikon file, because I've used Nikon cameras before as well, it's just not as easy to get the look I want. So where do I see the industry going? The industry is going to keep pushing technology. 
but I want them to start looking at character. Man, I, wow. I mean, there's a, there's a convicting statement that I, I sincerely hope I, here's what I do know is I know a number of industry heads actually listen to this podcast. I don't know if this will affect anything or not. Probably not. Um, <laughs> but I think what you're saying is a bold statement that is, it, it should, hypothetically, it should resonate to all of us, like to you listeners uh, that, are, that are queuing in right now. Are you making intentional decisions about your gear? Is the, is the camera that is in your bag right now, is it inspiring you to create? Right? Like when you pick that thing up, do you feel like you have got a blank canvas and an entire color palette full of beautiful art just ready to be made? Or did you buy that camera because you were influenced into it? And don't get me wrong, the marketing campaigns these days are brilliant. They're absolutely remarkable. Um, but Tom, I'm going to ask you, I, I'm going to ask your opinion on this. You guys remember, um, Tom, I don't know if you ever saw this being in the UK, but uh, maybe you were in New York during this time period, or maybe they had them, uh, you know, in the UK for a while. But there was this massive push. I think it was like the iPhone 10, maybe iPhone 8 or 9 or 10, something like that. Yeah. There was this massive push for this marketing campaign that, that said shot on iPhone. Yeah. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it was, it was these, huge. Um, I had friends that was, it was Tim Landis. It was like, I had, I had friends that were the photographers behind these images, right? And you would see these photos in like New York bus stations, just printed huge. I mean, we're talking like six foot images that were yeah. remarkable, absolutely like shocking. And I remember clearly being like, my iPhone can't take, I don't know how you did that, but mm-hmm. you know, my iPhone photos certainly don't look like that. And I, how many of you guys, I mean, Tom, I'm, I'm guilty. How about you? How many, if you guys buy a camera or buy a lens or something because you've been, you've been marketed into it and then, you know, you click the thing and you're like, crap, it's still just me. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of the, the conceit of it all because in the end, if I showed you five of my images shot on five different camera systems, the truth is I don't think you could tell them apart like you could probably make an argument one way or another if I told you exactly what camera they were and you had time, but that's not really how people appreciate artwork. And I definitely saw the shot on iPhone campaign. And frankly, I think printing them that large is kind of cheating because like billboards don't need a lot of resolution because they're a long, long way away. And actually on that point, I literally had a client yesterday complain that my files were too large, as in there was too much resolution in them. So I had to reduce the resolution of my files. So Another another thing that people tell you that you need, that, oh, commercial photographers need a ton of resolution. Well, not on every job, frankly. Like, the resolution is the last thing you should be concerned about. Um, but going back to the, the, the main point, like, I, I don't think that you could tell my work apart. Like, the thing you said about being inspired by the gear you're using, I think that has a lot more to do with it. And, and actually, some of the photographers that I respect the most in the industry, like there's, there's a guy, um, Jim Marsden, he's a really great commercial photographer. He only shoots on film and has only ever shot on film. And his current rule is that he will not shoot with any camera that needs a battery. That's, that's the conceit, and that's what he's sticking to. Um, and he very often has cameras that become the zeitgeist. Like he was shooting a lot of his work on a Rollerflex, and then Rollerflex has got popular. So he doesn't use Rollerflex anymore. He uses something different. Because for him... 
He just wants to have ready access to affordable equipment that doesn't get in the way and isn't complicated so he can focus on what he cares about, which is the people in front of his camera and taking pictures. And I think that it's it, it you look at the thing, oh, I wish I could do that. If only my clients would let me do that. But the fact is that he's working with enormous brands, but he's managed to find brands that align with that, brands that care more about people and process and character instead of anything technical. Um, there, there are other photographers. There's a, there's a wedding photographer over here, um, Paul Williams, his ginger beard weddings. And he switched to Leica recently because he just loves the experience of using the cameras. He started with an M10 and had like a, the, the manual focus lenses around his neck and he was shooting everything manual. Absolutely loving the experience. And his work genuinely improved. Now, you could argue that it's because Leica is just better than Sony. And I think a lot of people might argue that. But I think more importantly for him, he just found a brand that fit him properly. Like when he looks through that viewfinder, he sees what he had in his head. So at that point, when you're making your work, it it just feels familiar and it feels right. And if your kit isn't like that, there's probably an argument to be made it's time to make a change. Oh man, I love I love that perspective. I, mean, I know um, people have heard me say this a lot. You've probably heard me say this before. But um, I didn't realize how sloppy I had gotten as a wedding photographer until I picked up that uh, the GFX 50R. Yeah. Um, I didn't realize it. And then I, I held that camera and I had this like existential crisis where I sat back and realized I was, I was complaining. I was fighting myself over how many photos I was missing, right? Mm. It's changed the conversation I've had with photographers ever since. But I was fighting myself and I was like, you know, come on, this thing doesn't, it's only what, three frames per second and it's got this long blackout period. And, and, and then I sat back and looked at it and I was like, man, you have to give this another chance. This is a 50 megapixel medium format. Of course, it has to be slower. It has to, you know, all of this stuff. And now we know that Fujifilm was right around the corner with some, some quicker tech, but... I gave it another chance. And you know what I figured out, Tom, was that it was me that was broken. Like I had learned to rely on those loud, obnoxious machine gun cameras. Before I was a Fujifilm photographer, I've said this story a million times. I was carrying in one bag, you guys, in one bag, I was carrying a Canon 1DX Mark II and a Nikon D5 because I was scared to death that anybody in the industry could shoot faster or louder or bigger than I could. Y'all, I was broken. Mm. Like, it was, it, was a, it was a flawed version of art. And because yeah. of that, I was carrying that flaw into my creativity. And the moment I released myself of that, and I just said, like, from now on, every camera I pick up, regardless, I don't care. If Fujifilm pays me to shoot it, it doesn't matter, you guys. Every camera that I pick up, I'm going to set down immediately unless I feel inspired by it. And it, that's brave. Though. I mean, it blew the that's doors. That's really off. brave. Like the the thing is, you're saying that that's a brave decision. Like I, the, you're talking about the GFX um, 50, and I'm just going to say this straight out: the first time I shot with the GFX 50s with 35 millimeter lenses, as in like a like manual focus lenses made for normal like mm-hmm. DSLRs. It blew my mind because actually I had the opposite experience. Like I, I was expecting to, to struggle with it, but it just felt comfortable. So I'd like, 
this is super nerdy, but my favorite lens of all time is the Voigtlander 58mm 1.4. It's a redesign of a really old lens and it has incredibly terrible vignetting on the GFX, but it's got the equivalent depth of field of a 40mm 1.2, maybe even faster than that, maybe an F1. And I shot the thing manual focused. I shot an artist in her studio and missed two shots out of 200. But in my head, it was impossible to shoot manual focus because you'd miss all your shots. Because the industry's telling you, you need IAF, you need continuous autofocus. You couldn't possibly do anything with a manual focus lens. It's like an equivalent depth of field of an F1. And yet when I actually did the shoot, it was fine. And because I was nervous, I shot it side by side with my R5. But I didn't end up using any of the R5 shots in the final delivery because I liked the way that the character was from that larger sensor and these slightly more flawed lenses. So on what you were saying about you felt deficient and like you were using something as a crutch, I think there's the opposite thing. We can be afraid of making choices that might make things more difficult for us, but actually they're, they're the things that we should be looking for. Like there's a, a videographer in the UK, Philip White. He's a fairly big name in the industry. Um, I did his workshop a few years ago and something that really stuck with me when I was on that workshop was him telling me, telling everybody actually, that you're looking for, you're looking for something human because he was endorsed by Sony at the time. And they had all these autofocus lenses. And when he was on the advertisements, he had these autofocus lenses on his camera. And when you went on the workshop, it turns out everything was shot on a manual focus lens. And he said, I do that on purpose. And I do that on purpose because I want some humanity in my images. And the second that he realized that he, that wasn't aligning, he moved and jumped off to Leica. So again, he's a videographer shooting with a Leica camera, which is the last thing you'd ever think of. But for him, it was about the lenses and the experience. And now, literally over the last month, he's just had his first advertisement with Leica. So they've started to recognize that this guy gets it because that ethos aligns. Like they, he cares about character. We care about character. It, it's just a good fit, you know? Yeah, it, 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 it's that that cohesion of brand and, and perspective. And I, that, that's the art. Right, like people are always constantly saying that. Yeah, how many often, how many times you hear that? Right, where it's like, are you an artist or are you a, basically like a camera operator or what do they call it, a content creator? Right. Yeah. Well, where, where, where does the art? Where do you inform the art from? I had a conversation yesterday, Tom. I think you'll appreciate this uh, with a, a potential client, and we were chatting through. She was she was bragging on on my Instagram page, and she was like, "I just love all the frames and the way that you pick your you curate your images." And she sat back in her chair. I, I, I was surprised at her reaction to this, but I said, you know how I choose which images go on my Instagram? And she said, yeah, tell me. And I said, uh, I only pick images that I, can, that I can immediately find a flaw in. If I can't Im immediately find something that is imperfect with that photo, with either you know, the, the posing or you know the the dress looks ruffled, or the hair is across her face, or or whatever it is, it doesn't matter. If I can't find something that is immediately imperfect, it doesn't make it. And yep. she said, "Why would you do that?" And I said, "Because I'm an imperfect artist, and my subjects are imperfect people, and I have no interest in trying to convince the the world otherwise." 
that's so, powerful. okay, so that takes us here. What, okay, so yeah, that, that takes us into you you just made a pretty significant jump into a whole new system. So we've now heard that you were a Sony shooter and then you were a Canon shooter. And then you, you so I'm sorry, you were a Sony shooter. Then you spent a brief period of time as a Fujifilm shooter and then you jumped to Canon. Yep. And um, I'm, I'm excited to share with the world what, what, what just happened. So I, I just bought another Fujifilm. Like I've, I've now got a Fujifilm X-H2S that's on its way over from the, the retailer right now. Um, I had one before, actually. I, I ordered one on launch day. I uh, had a couple of issues with it. I had to return it. But honestly, the announcement they just made about frame IO integrating with the camera is super exciting. But actually going back to the character thing, um, this 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 is about Fujifilm. Like one of the things that swayed me was like I said, the X100. But another thing, like I tested out the some of the newer Fuji lenses, the, the new kind of like main series, the 33mm LM um, being notable. And the thing I liked most about it was that they they don't go nuts with stuff like sharpness. Like that lens has got detail, but it's not, it's not got that kind of like micro contrast in the skin that kind of makes every pore stand out and like just generally is unflattering. Makes it look animated. It, exactly. It, it kind of feels like the lens has a bit more dimension. And actually when I, when I got the files back um, from the X-H2S, the first time I had it with the 33, I remember noting like how much like 35 millimeter film the images ended up looking like it, like way, way back. I used to use like a, a Leica M2 and had like a Zeiss lens on it and loved it. Um, but the, the kind of look and feel of these images after I've done my edit on them just reminded me a lot of that setup that kind of like, it's not super shallow depth of field, but the depth of field that is there is is really characterful. Um, you don't have to worry too much about somebody getting lost in a background, but the background's got a bit of interest. And I think part of the reason why I've been excited to look at Fuji as well is because they're not ignoring video the way that, that, that they may have been accused of doing re- previously. Um, and actually for anybody that's on the fence, like I've had enormous headaches with Canon and overheating and issues with the video. Um, the X-H2S has some of the nicest footage I've seen out of any camera. And we've been having a character discussion, but even on a practical level, it's offering features in video that I don't see anywhere else. Like things like recording the whole sensor. Like, so essentially you've got a 26 megapixel frame grab if you took a still out of your video. And it's the same aspect ratio as your stills would be. You could literally record video all day and just pull frames out and deliver that if you really wanted to. It's There's some pretty interesting stuff happening in the camera from a technology point of view, but they're not letting that crowd out the more important thing, which is giving you a result that has an aesthetic build, built into it. Designing a system with lenses that aren't just about technical perfection, they're about a bit of character. And looking at Fujifilm's pedigree, I think a large part of that is because they've been making optics for Hasselblad, for cinema, for basically any medium format system for a long time. They've got pedigree and the people that are making the decisions around the equipment don't have to worry about making a sensor that can technically perform because they, they, they bring those in. The work that they're doing is trying to put the character back into something that would normally be a cold piece of equipment. And the reason why I think the X100V is sold out everywhere and everybody seems to love it is because it's the the most accessible version of that. It's tiny, it's nearly silent, it's got a lens attached to it so you don't have to decide anything and the images just look good. 
there are other cameras at this price point at this size that people don't love as much as this. That again, the reason that is is because they're thinking about the things that artists care about, photographers care about, people that like to look at photographs care about. Mm, man, I uh, let me let me show you something really quick. I know you've seen these, but if you're over on YouTube, I'm, I'm holding an, an iPhone 12 right now, and I'm holding the XH2. I mean, is that not like mind-boggling? It's crazy to me mm. that yep. that we've gotten to a point now where where that that uh, that podium between you and your subjects, right? It just keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And you're right the the character. Uh, of this camera, um, those of you guys, especially, I keep saying over on YouTube that the last video that I posted, right, is a is a live review of this camera, of the XH2 versus the XH2S. Um, I, Tom, I'll say it, man. I was, I was pretty skeptical. I really was. It was the reason why I took both of those cameras and shot them alongside my GFX 100S. Yeah. Because for three years now, I've been a largely medium format photographer. And so I knew that, I guess I didn't know this. I'm grateful for it. You guys, don't get me wrong. I'm grateful. But I assumed that the opportunity was coming down the line from my Fujifilm team for me to spend some time with one of these cameras in my hand. And I was like, I don't, I don't want to say yes. I, you guys, you heard me a few minutes ago. I just said, I won't shoot a camera unless I feel inspired by it. So I didn't want to say yes until I knew. But um, man, these things are incredible. Like it's, it's pretty... It's pretty wild what a 40 megapixel APS-C file really looks like. Um, and that stack sensor design, I, talk me through, okay, so what, what would be, I'm just curious because you're, you're such a nerd with this stuff. What would be the reason why you bought the X-H2S over the X-H2? Oh, like plain and simple. Like, so there's a limit to how much detail an optic can resolve. For a starter, like Fujifilm was saying that the, the new LM lenses will resolve um, up to like 40 megapixels that are in this new X-H2. But personally, I, I don't like it when you, I like my lenses to be able to resolve more than my sense is capable of capturing. I know it sounds stupid, but I like to see grain before I like to see the, the end of the detail from a lens. Um, mm-hmm. And frankly, I'd said this earlier, clients complain when you give them too much resolution. So there is no practical advantage for me to deliver something that's usually going to be intended for web use when there are some other trade-offs you're making. And for me, the main reason why I would not choose the X-H2 is nothing to do with photography. Although, like I said, I kind of like that it's a little bit lower resolution. It's video. The, the uh, I can't tell you how important I think video is going to be going forward. I've said this on this podcast before, like video is the future. It, it, it just is. And I don't think that you can sleep on it forever. And I think the way that Fujifilm are integrating it is, is pretty interesting. Like things like open gate sound technical. And for anybody that doesn't know, it essentially just means that it records the entire sensor, not a 16 by nine crop which means if you're making content for YouTube and for Instagram, you can make one frame and you've got all this extra headroom that you can use. You, you can easily reframe things. So if you want to make it fit two different containers, you can do that more easily because you've got more space to make the adjustment. In addition to that, 
they're doing quite a lot in terms of making sure the colors are right. It has an absolutely enormous dynamic range. And in video, that matters a little bit more because in stills, if something clips, you can just bring a highlight slider down and it comes back because the raw file's got more data. But in video, if that highlight clips, it's just gone. There's nothing. And you might not want to see everything eventually, but if you don't have it in the image to begin with, it will never be there. So when Fujifilm announced things like F-Log2, which gives you enormous amounts of dynamic range and a little bit more noise, that's really exciting because it means that you can shoot something in really awkward conditions and still deliver easily. So it's a practical improvement. And for those of us that kind of have to pull double GT or choose to pull double GT, the X-H2S is a better choice. Because even though the X-H2 has more resolution, it's got an 8K sensor, it doesn't have that open gate mode, which means it's harder for me to reframe content that gets used on social. And on top of that, it's got significantly less of that dynamic range, which means you'll lose shadow information sooner, your highlights won't look as pleasing in the same situations. And for a lot of people, that really doesn't matter. And if you're one of those people that don't notice those things, then actually the X-H2 is great because not only is it higher resolution, it's also cheaper. So if you're on the fence and thinking, which one do I want? If you're only shooting stills, like this isn't really a conversation, save you money. But if what you want is something that's going to perform as well or better as a video camera than as a stills camera, the X-H2S is literally built for it. And... I can't, I can't say, like, I've used a lot of video cameras. I've used a lot of, a lot of film cameras. I've used all that. The X-H2S has the nicest image out of camera. I had a Canon R5C. I did not like the image anywhere near as much as the X-H2S, and that camera is more than double the price. Man, I, um, I had a really funny conversation. Um, I, you'll love this, but I had a funny conversation with a, a good friend of mine. Um, you know him as well, Brennan Bucheri, that, that, uh, that mm. hosts the uh, Cutting on Action podcast yep. um, about this camera. And given, guys, I, I, I want to be clear, this isn't like, Fujifilm's not paying for me to, you know, I should turn my mug around here, right? Like, they're not, they're not paying for me to have these conversations. Um, this isn't an endorsed, you know, conversation. But no. I think it's fascinating because so often um, I'm quick to avoid the topic of gear, as we mentioned early on, uh, just because I feel like it's a slippery slope. And photographers often find their, uh, like they find a home, uh, like a breeding ground for their imposter syndrome and their comparison complexes. They find it in that concept of like, well, if I had this camera, I would be better. Right, or if I could just afford that lens, or of course that guy is well known. He shoots a Leica, or you know, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm having this conversation with Brandon, and and it, you'll love this. So he shoots most of his stuff now as high end commercial uh, cinema work, right? So they're shooting Aries, they're shooting some Red camera. Um, he doesn't prefer Red, but they do some Red work, um, even like the Ursa pockets and stuff like that, and he's looking at the specs of this camera, and he was like wait, oh my gosh, like on paper, this thing is shooting a full cinema quality f- file. Yep. Um, you know, like 422 10-bit with, with ProRes. Yeah. And he's like, oh my gosh, you know, like how big is this thing? And I'm like, it's smaller, it's smaller than an iPhone. And he goes, where, when can I get one? Right. And then <laughs> it's, it's an amazing thing that the industry is going through right now. So, okay. So give us some advice because you have clearly jumped, you've, you've run the spectrum, right? Like yep. 
every brand you shoot photo, you shoot video, you you've you were a wedding photographer, now you are mm-hmm. a commercial photographer and videographer. Yeah. You have run the industry. So give us some advice as we're purchasing gear. Where do you start with this stuff? Um that's a difficult question because I think to get a really good quality answer, it's part of you, you, your growth as a photographer. I think that if you just take somebody else's opinion on it, you're going to end up with what they like and not what's best for you. Um, I mean, that being said, very often you can do things like look at somebody's work and decide based on that whether or not it's the right choice for you or not. Um, because seeing examples in similar situations is a really good way of finding out. But honestly, if you're on a budget, you've got some pretty cool choices. Like, um, I still really like the X-T3, the Fuji X-T3. And that camera is getting pretty old now. You can get them used for next to nothing. And I really like the old 35mm 1.4 on that camera. So if you wanted to start somewhere, like, that is one of my favorite combinations. Like, half of the pictures of my son are taken on that combo. Because at the time, that that was what I had. And I keep looking back and really enjoying that. And I think you can pick that combo up for less than £1,500 now, like new. So considering what other camera brands charge for their cameras, like I'm not, again, I'm not, I'm definitely not endorsed by Fuji. I've never seen or talked to anybody from Fuji film. Like I don't, I don't know any of these people, but that is a really amazing camera and I've got firsthand experience with it. But if you're asking like, how do you decide? I don't know that you can just say like, oh, this camera is the one for you because it assumes too many things. Like for me, this was my first camera. It's it's a Canon film camera with a Sigma 50 millimeter lens on it. And th- this, not the, the art lens that everybody likes, this is the old one that everybody hated. And I love this, pardon me, I love this lens. This is this combo is, is my favorite. So when, when I started out, this was the only combination of things I have. And as a result of that, every other camera that I've got is essentially looking from the look that I got from this combo, but more convenient or more affordable to shoot with because I can't afford to shoot everything on film or I might need more resolution or there's a number of things that you could do with it. But I think without actually getting your hands on the gear and going out and shooting with it, there's no real way of knowing. Everybody could argue that other oh, 35 millimeter lens is the best and you might hate it. And that's cool. Because the fact is that I don't want you to be me. I want you to find out what lights you up. You might try the X100V and hate it. And again, I love that because at least you'll have an opinion then and you'll know for certain it's not for you. Like I've got, I guess the advice that I would give is try and avoid the sunk cost fallacy. If you buy a piece of kit that everybody says is amazing and you hate it, be strong enough in your conviction to know that it's not for you. It's not bad. There's nothing wrong with it. Because the person that loved it didn't recommend it to you to try and trick you. They actually like it. Like This is a conversation I have with friends that shoot Sony all the time. There's nothing wrong with Sony cameras. They are wonderful. I just don't like them. And then there needs to be enough, enough maturity to say, like, that person gave me good advice that wasn't for me. Take that on the chin and move on. Because if you don't, you can end up in Man, a I- situation where you stick with something too long. I love Sorry, that perspective so much. I uh, no, you're you're okay. I um, unpopular opinion here. You know what? What I think first opened the door for me into switching over to a Fujifilm camera was probably the least popular Nikon camera um, ever made, and it was my favorite. I had the Nikon DF, 
And it was, yep. it was this little flawed, messed up, man, they screwed up everything when they made that. I mean, you couldn't find a positive review on that camera. But I, I got it because I just thought it looked awesome. And it was the first camera that I'd ever purchased as a professional that, that I just thought looked cool. I was like, you know, this yep. thing is kind of vintagey and neat. And it was the slippery slope for me. It really was. I started looking at it and I was like, man, wouldn't it be nice to have a camera that I think it looks cool and I actually like the image out of because the images out of the DF were kind of garbage. And, uh, and I, you know what? I think you're right. I think your advice stands really true. Genuinely across the board. Like how polarized are these conversations that you hear right now, right? Where people are like, oh, I use an Android phone. I use an Apple phone or I only edit on, you know, like... But isn't it wonderful as artists that we have choices? Yep. Uh, so, okay. Well, so Tom, let's wrap it up with this. Uh, do, do me, do us all a favor. I, I want some advice from you. Just, just like quick tips on how to best try uh, the specs out on new gear. Because you're one of the few people that I know that does a brilliant job of saying, okay, I like this, but I don't like that. I love yep. that the greens look good, but the magentas look like garbage. How is it that you trial and error test out new gear before you buy it? So the first thing I'll say is that there are some brands like Canon and Fuji film in the UK, at least that will allow you to test drive kit. kit. You can just, there's a website, you sign up, they give you the kit for two days. If you like it, great, buy it, and then you hand it back. If you hate it, just don't buy it. Simple as that. Great, great services. Like I said, Fujifilm have Fuji Loan and Canon offer it only on a couple of models, but Fuji do it for everything. Um, again, not endorsed. It's just, just a fact. But if you're talking about specs, like I'm going to give you an example. So the X-H2S, you just said Brandon was super excited about it because it's got, it's got cinema specs and all this kind of stuff. And the problem is that when a camera company advertises something, they're going to use buzzwords that they think are going to make it seem more appealing. So for example, ProRes is an incredible thing. For those that don't know, it's something that Apple made to make editing really smooth. You put it on a computer and it plays back like it's butter, just extra smooth. You can be super high resolution footage, but it's just smooth. Great colors, great tonality. It is super inefficient and an absolutely horrible format if you're going to archive anything. So if you're a solo content creator and you're trying to make foot, like make video, like at a wedding, for example, and you shoot it all in ProRes, there's a good chance your file sizes will be about double the size and you will get no additional quality at all. The thing is that when people talk about these cameras, they start testing them in their maximum quality settings. But really, that isn't it. So if you're asking me how I find out where to get the, the, the kind of like last few percent from a camera, like one, the specs do matter, but the specs they're advertising aren't always the things you should be looking at. Like if you see a camera advertised with an 8K sensor, it, it doesn't mean anything. They've literally banned every 8K television that's currently available for sale in the EU from 2023 because they, they've got two too bad energy emissions. So anybody that's telling you that you need 8K is not telling you the truth, just plain and simple. And the same thing with a lot of the specs that are on a camera's uh, sheet. If you see like thousands of autofocus points, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. This camera has one autofocus, this camera has one autofocus point that works and you can still make great pictures with it. 
if you're shooting sports and you need to track somebody across the field, don't buy this camera, then look at the autofocus points. It's not a game of like finding the camera that's best at everything. It's about finding something that feels perfect for what you do and the way you work. So for you, Miles, for example, everybody hated the Nikon DF. But you know what? It's not that much different to the GFX50. It was a camera with an incredible looking sensor with nothing else that kind of worked the way you would expect it for a camera in that price bracket. So Fujifilm did something different in putting a massive sensor in the camera that you got to make it really rewarding. But the fact is that you were dealing with worse autofocus because you enjoyed the experience and the results of shooting with the camera. And I think if I can say anything to you, if you're not getting that from your current kit, either you need to learn how to use it more or you might want to change it for something that feels more fun. And that does not mean more expensive. If you had an old camera that you loved and you upgraded it because you, you thought you should and you like it less, go back to the old camera. You don't need new kit. You need kit that fits you. Hmm. Okay. That's actually absolutely brilliant. I like I think I needed that advice, to be honest with you. It's just it's just great to hear. Um I don't know if you've looked through Tom the uh you know, YouTube trolls show up. They will on this chat as well. Uh you guys you guys show up in every video post. Um can it be said, like let it be said that when you guys roll in, most of the YouTube creators out there, we just chuckle at you, like you don't actually affect us. But that's okay. But um, I had somebody that wrote me the other day after a YouTube video that was talking about the X-H2 versus the X-H2S. They were like, well, I did see this French videographer that posted uh, uh, a side-by-side comparison of a dog running at the camera. And the X-H2 didn't catch nearly as many photos in focus. And I'm just sitting back to myself laughing because I'm like, well, thank God I'm not a dog photographer. (laughs) Yeah, like I've yet to have a bride run down the aisle erratically barking at me. But you know, when that happens, maybe I'll rethink my gear. I ultimately, Tom, I I think your your point stands in the sense that it's like you have to know where you're headed and what you need out of your gear, and then test it and enjoy it. And if it doesn't speak to you creatively, or you feel like you're spending more time trying to force it to do what it's not meant to do, well, then you probably made a really bad choice and it might be time to look elsewhere. So, um, okay. And it's not the end of the world. Anything else, like, Tom? Hit me with it. it. It's not the end of the world. If you get your, your kit wrong, you can just buy different kit. Like, shoot with it for a while until you make enough money to replace it. Like, I know it's... When you first buy this stuff, the amount of money is so high that you can feel awful about having purchased this piece of equipment that doesn't feel perfect for you. But the fact is the used market is awesome. There's a good chance you'll make a good chunk of your money back and you can move on to the next piece of kit. It it doesn't have to be the end of the world. And the other thing I'll say is that it's not forever. I love testing all this stuff. I get a kick out of it. And if you get a kick out of it too, don't feel guilty for enjoying it. There's nothing wrong with picking up a camera and learning how to get the best out of it and enjoying that. And if you don't, that's fine too. Don't feel afraid of shooting a 5D Mark II from back in the day just because like bloke next door has got the new R5C like fancy pants camera. Like it 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 doesn't matter. Your camera's not getting worse because your next door neighbor bought a fancier one. That's uh that's remarkably keen perspective. I mean, I, I think that was a part of the conversation that we had, right? The other day was me saying like if you if you're that hesitant, right? That that was where we all started with this, 
was you selling that that fifty millimeter one point two? Just being like, oh geez, okay, I think I think I'm ready, Miles. I think I'm ready. And I'm like, man, just do it. Just <laughs> if you're to a point where you feel stale, there's as much to be gained by just forcing yourself to see the world through a brand new set of eyes. Mm-hmm. And if you regret that, you know, like give yourself actual time to regret that and then go back and you know what? Save the money, work hard, figure it out and then buy that exact same kit that you sold. But you know what? Suddenly you're going to have a completely refreshed uh, perspective on how valuable that kit is as yep. opposed to, you know, walking around uh, like, you know, angsty because you wish you had something else, but you're afraid to sell it. So cool, man. Well, dude, an hour conversation with Tom, Wright. Um, you guys, that's a, that's a treat. I mean, if you guys don't know Tom's work, um, click click the the show notes below to see it. Tom is uh, one of the most one of the most detail oriented, just just creative guys that I know in his work. He genuinely is. He also is worse at accepting compliments than I am. But um, as an educator, Tom has some exciting stuff coming. Can you give us any plug on that, or is it not ready? It, it's it's still in the works, but we're kind of doing a slow launch. So right now I am teaching workflow courses for Lightroom, which means getting your work from your camera to published with as little danger as possible, as smoothly as possible. Being able to edit your work on your phone, on your iPad, on your laptop, anywhere in the world, and trying to save you as much time as possible so you can get back to shooting or spending time with your family. Yeah, so I would reach out, guys. if, if If you end up hearing this far into it, I would reach out. Tom has something to teach you. I can promise you that. Um, even if you just get on a wait list for this stuff, um, I can I can assure you that when uh, when all of Tom's educational platforms are released, I will be at the front of that line. Um, he's working with me right now. Here's a shameless plug. He's working with me right now on on helping me kind of understand ways that we can actually integrate the new Frame.io platform from the XH2S uh, directly into my Lightroom catalog. Um, stuff that even even the Frame IO people, y'all, and I have access to that at this point. Even the Frame IO people, even the Fujifilm team, is still trying to figure out just how powerful this new tech is. And having friends like Tom uh, allows me to like kind of walk and peek around the corner. So, uh, Tom, I'm just super grateful for you, man, and thank you so much for for jumping on here and talking about the one thing that I always avoid talking about. <laughs> Thanks thanks for having me. And just for anybody that's still struggling with gear addiction, I'm right there with you. <laughs> gear addiction. <laughs> I feel like we should have like a slide that pops up at the end that says, if you are struggling with gear addiction, here's a hotline. Call 1-800-BY-TOMW. <laughs> don't call that number. Don't Guys, don't call that number. We need to end this podcast quickly because it is. We, this was so good until just now. Uh, you know what we're going to do at the end? We're just going to cut to a picture of Igor Demba's face because no matter yes. what happens, as long as we as long as we land with that, we just we just landed the plane, right? <laughs> yeah. Just, let's just get uh, let's give Igor and his his podcast a plug too. Look at um, that he's doing great stuff right now as well. Man, he is. He is. Okay. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for popping in. Uh, we will see you again next week. And uh, and y'all, do do me a favor. Go out and buy an XH2. Okay, bye.